what's going on Moab? This is Blaine here with the History Hour, and today I am joined again by my new co-host, Mr. Josh Barlow. And I just wanted to reintroduce him today because we're going to do kind of a um, kind of an open uh, historical show today. So we're going to be kind of all over the place with lots of different types of uh, history within the uh, Moab region. Um, also, real quick, the phone lines will be open today. Um, so if you would like to call in, ask any type of question, um, and that phone number is 435 259 5968. Once again, that phone number is 435 259 five nine six eight so um so yeah uh josh barlow uh here new co-host uh so want to ask you real quick what exactly do you really truly love about the history uh here oh we'll be here all day blaine um but uh um i mean overall it's it's the diversity in moab the historical diversity the geographical diversity the diversity of of science that we have here um but i would say the thing that that um excites me the most um is talking talking about our archaeology our ancient past um and uh and yeah, when I bring when I bring my guests out, um, you know, because our, our our job as a guide is is to make the people feel connected, to feel something to this place, right? Um, and so, you know, when you're when we talk about geology, geology, we have hundreds of millions of years of of geology, and everything moves so incredibly so slowly, something the human mind can't even even comprehend. So when I, when I talk to my guests and, and I'm, and I'm really trying to help them feel connected, I, I bring up the fact that, you know, the first humans that were here 10,000 years ago, um, almost everything that they, they saw, um, a lot of the arches, a lot of our formations, the canyons, the river, all of these features that, that my guests look at and they're like, wow, that's, that's beautiful. So did the first humans 10,000 years ago. And we see that, um, evidenced by their art. You know, we, we see there thousands of years ago, they, they, they would, you know, draw mountains and uh, in, in the river and, and all of these things. So um, I would say overall the diversity. And then you can, you know, more recently you can get into the outlaw history um, and things like that, which is obviously really interesting in its own way. But yeah. Yeah, that's exactly kind of along the same lines um, as a guide here. Um, one of the things I absolutely love is that our history is still visible and it's tangible. Um, but, but don't touch it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, um, but yeah, you know, to, to look back at like dinosaur tracks and the fact that mm-hmm. we find uh, that dinosaur bones and fossils are found out here, giving evidence of our oceanic past and our prehistoric uh, late Jurassic era past and even all the pictographs and petroglyphs and uh, dwellings and all of that, you know, like we still have it out here. And, um, and I think that we were talking earlier about, uh, particularly on the same subject here real quick. Um, I think we were talking about, um, the fact that they found some, some mammoth stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, so down in Horseshoe Canyon also, uh, professor, um, uh, is it professor Canyon, um, down, down river road. Um, they've, they've found mammoth tusks that they dated back, back about 10,000 years, um, which, which is so interesting. And I, you know, I could talk about this all day, but, you know, the first humans, we date back around 10,000 years ago, and it seems that the mammoths were either hunted to extinction or pushed out about 10,000 years ago. Um, and so it's, we, we, talk, we were talking about dinosaurs, right? So we have, you know, about 
200 million years of paleontological history here. Um, we have um, um, all three eras, the Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous. Um, and we, we see evidence of them through their tracks and their fossils and all of these things. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to, to, to look at this place um, and imagine what was here, right? We, we talk, I, I hear this, this analogy a lot, like going to the Colosseum in Rome, right? You, ta- you touch that rock and you imagine the stories it could tell. Right. We're talking 2,000 years, 3,000 years there. Here, we're talking hundreds of millions of years. That's, that's incredible. That's so much history. Um, and you can literally look out and, and knowing the oceans we had, the tidal flats, um, and all of those different eras of dinosaurs, um, and imagine you know, the, the, the tropical environments, the marshlands, all these things, and these dinosaurs roaming around. Um, you know, and then more recently, as we were just talking about the mammoths, um, you know, I think um, that that uh, m- most likely, right, when we're talking archaeology and we're finding these mammoth tusks um, and we're finding evidence of humans 10,000 years ago, um, those humans most likely followed those mammoths here because, you know, that would have been their food source. Um, and and we, we can see uh, through history where, you know, they're, they're – because 10,000 years ago, you know, we have those archaic hunter-gatherers. They weren't – planting crops they were gathering they were hunting so we see you know our artifacts are bigger bigger spearheads because they're hunting bigger game mm-hmm. um you know we also had saber-toothed cats and mastodons and more recently cave bears you know we have these massive animals that are in our recent history within you know the humans being here um but uh but yeah yeah the uh that kind of reminds me of um i was uh, just guiding some people uh last week and um, they were from Europe. And so they were kind of asking questions about, like, you know, the history. And I was telling them, you know, oh, yeah, you know, late 1800s, Moab. And they were like, that is so interesting to us that your history is so new here. Because over in Europe, you know, we have these buildings and these sites and stuff. <laughs> you know, like, we've got our Colosseums and they're so old. And I was like, yeah. And then we were, we were driving down Potash Road. And I was like, yeah, but actually... Let me show you some really, really old history. And I started to teach them about how our history just isn't, this, this didn't start from the 1800s, but it goes way back further than that. And it just kind of like blew their minds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, but isn't there, there's a Mastodon uh, petroglyph, uh, I believe. And uh, there was one that was found uh, down there near the Needles uh, somewhere uh, way back in the day. And uh, I believe this was like in the 50s or so. And they actually, it had fallen. And the petroglyph was still intact with the rock that had fallen. Well, they, they hauled it all the way up to the Arches uh, Visitor Center. And it sat there for a while <laughs> before people just got so like, you know, it, it was just, too much of an upraise that they moved the mastodon petroglyph up there. So then they actually took it back and put it right back where they found it. Um, and I don't know the exact location where that's at. I should probably uh, look that up somewhere. Sometime. <laughs> but, you know, but yeah. So, but what else, uh, what else do you really like about this history here, Josh? Um, if we're talking more local history, obviously the outlaws, you know, the, out, yeah. the, the, the Butch Cassidy, um, and his gang, um, all, all the different outlaw groups that were here. Um, 
I, I, I think that, that that's a really interesting uh, part of our history as well. It's more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love talking about Butch Cassidy on, uh, on my trips. For instance, Blaine, did you know that Butch Cassidy invented the getaway? Oh, yeah. Wait. But he did. Okay, explain that a little bit. Hold on. <laughs> explain that a little so, bit. <laughs> so there might have been someone that did it before him, but but he's known for inventing the getaway because at that time, right, horses were your were your mode of travel. Um, and a lot of times the lawmen or just, you know, people in general, that horse was their best friend or part of their family. They would do anything possible to prevent that horse from dying. Mm-hmm. So um, they would sprint that horse for about 15 miles, maybe 20 miles, mm-hmm. and then they would walk it mm-hmm. for 10, 15 miles. Butch Cassidy robbed trains or banks a long distance away mm-hmm. from wherever his hideout was. So if, mm-hmm. if we're talking about um, the robber's roost and his hideout there, um, you know, he might do a, a robbery in Grand Junction, Colorado, which was mm-hmm. common, right? So he would set up relay horses. He and his gang would set up relay horses from the hideout all the way to where they roundabout where they were going to do their robbery, mm-hmm. right? So when they rob in, the, in that posse or those lawmen start chasing them on their horses, they're going to sprint those horses for about ten miles. Mm-hmm. But Butch and his gang would, would would sprint those those horses for roughly twenty five miles, right to the brink of heat exhaustion, right to the brink of death, and then they would shoo them off and get on another horse and another horse and another horse, all the way back to the robber's roost. So they'd have no no idea where they went. They couldn't track them, mm-hmm. um, and because he was so good to the people here. Um, um, you know, there's stories of kids playing jacks with gold pieces, you know, because he was just giving so much money to the local communities um, that uh, that no one wanted to turn him in. No one wanted to tell the lawman where, where, where he was. And that's mm-hmm. why he was so successful. Um, but, yeah, he invented the getaway. That's pretty cool. Wasn't there a story about how he um, – it was the story that – because, okay. So, real quick, everyone who's listening, <laughs> me and Josh just did a trip together um, out to uh, the Horseshoe Canyon. Uh, that was a really long day. Um, <laughs> it takes, like, what, three hours to drive out there? Yeah, three hours to drive out and then seven miles round trip. Of hiking. Of hiking. Down into the canyon <laughs> and then three hours. But, yeah, that was a long day. But you were telling, um, you were telling the guests about uh, the story where he had um, – where he had he had paid some people. It was it was it was with the banker, and right. then they came back and he re-robbed them or something. Uh, so this is a fun story. Oh, okay, yeah, I like. That. But <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's a story, right? You 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 know when we talk outlaws, we're talking. There's going to be a lot of embellishment. There's going to be you know some stories that might not be the real story, but this is still a really fun story mm-hmm. um, if it happens. So Butch typically didn't didn't rob any banks or. Um, anyone within Utah, he would go to other states or, or at least a, a far distance away um, from where his hideout was, um, which is another reason he was so successful. But um, there, the story goes that Butch Cassidy, the robber's roost was on the land of one of his childhood friends. Mm-hmm. And that, that friend was a rancher. His family were ranchers. And they, they came on hard times. Uh, they weren't making enough money to pay the bankers in Salt Lake City. Um, so the, the bankers from Salt Lake City were coming down um, to, to the Mays District of Canyonlands to, to, to repossess that farm. Mm-hmm. So Butch Cassidy gave his friend a big bag of gold and um, said, don't let them, those bankers leave until they've signed the deed over to you. Give them whatever they need. So those bankers got a ton of gold, way more than they should have gotten, but they're real happy with their haul. So they're, you know, they leave with all their gold. They sign the deed over to, to Butch's friends. And um, on their way back to Salt Lake City, um, Butch and his gang robbed them and took it all back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, and you know, whenever we're on tours and stuff like that, people people really love hearing those old stories. And uh, one of the stories that I like to share when it comes to uh, to Butch Cassidy and his gangs is uh, they would they would ride through Moab, but you know, if they needed to see the doctor, they would see you know old Doc Williams back in the day. And one of these stories goes. Um, that um, they, you know, they, they need to see the doctor. So they went and visited him and Butch wanted to go ahead and get on out of the area and hurry up out to uh, the, the robber's roost where they were hiding on the other side of the Mace, what is now the Mace District of Canyonlands. Uh, so he went ahead and some of his gang members had, you know, stayed behind and um, they stole the doc's favorite mare, his favorite, for his, well, his favorite female horse. And... Um, and the doc knew this area, old doc Williams, like he knew this area better than anyone else. I mean, you're the doctor having to make house calls out to, you know, Cisco and Thompson, even out to Hanksville and stuff. So like, you know how to traverse these canyons and on horseback. And the story goes that, um, he rode right into the robber's roost with his horse. Um, and nobody said a word. They saw the doc coming and, he took back his horse and came back to town. <laughs> it's like you're going into this, like this the the robbers' roost, just surrounded by outlaws and on horses with rifles. Yeah, you know they're probably <laughs> posted up on a wall somewhere, like you know checking out the area, you know making sure you know the law isn't coming in, but they see it's the doctor. And no one says a word. And no one said a word. But <laughs> I, I, you know, I heard throughout the stories that Butch Cassie was not very happy about that with his gang members because it's like. Don't make the doctor mad. He's the guy who's going to patch us up. And he was the only doctor. <laughs> he was the only doctor at the time. So, like, do not make this guy mad. Um, so, <laughs> but, you know, this uh, just the, the town itself and just our whole region, you know, it's it's all about phases. And that's one thing that I personally like also is that this area has gone over has just like the way Josh was describing this area has gone overgone so many geological changes um, but then also within town ourselves we've overgone through so many changes since the late 1800s when people started to actually live here um, you know like for instance uh, when town was first you know settled it was it was basically kind of like a lot of agriculture there was a lot of uh, uh, you know irrigation on the Colorado River and on Mill and Pat Creek and um, stuff like that and they were growing like you know melons and uh, lots of stuff that you can grow on vines that's why you know vineyards are really easy you know to sprout out here um, and then of course mining came in you know and people started coming out here looking to mine like around the 1920s and 30s and 40s and of course everybody knows you know boom the uranium days and um and then kind of like in the 1960s um that's when we started to see tourism uh come in as those uranium days were dying out kind of the market dropped um you know that just tourism started and um and there's something pretty cool um I, I i collected a lot of these old uh desert magazines uh this was a magazine that ran for several decades um and um I've got a lot of these magazines from the 40s and 50s, and it's so interesting because in the 1940s uh, articles and the 50s, they're just talking about random places of the American Southwest. But whenever you get into the 1960s articles, that's when I noticed that you start to see a lot of advertisements for 
Moab businesses, and they're wanting people to come to Moab. Um, so just seeing, just just knowing that 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 this place has overgone so many changes to be exactly where we're at today. That's what I really love. Also, I really like that we have all three of those main phases of town still in existence today. You know, we we got you know people in Spanish Valley, even here in the Moab Valley, that you know they you know, agriculture and, you know, we've got some, you know, farming still going on out here. Uh, there's also some mining still going on. Um, you know, the uh, potassium chloride salt mine down potash, the, the old potash mine. Um, and I really, and I really like that. And cause you know, on our, on our back country Canyonlands tours that we do, we drive right by it. And of course, as soon as, you know, if anyone has been down the potash road, you know, down into that Canyon, and out of nowhere, just boom, here's this massive facility. <laughs> and everyone's like, what is this? And um, and then that right there, you know, we can start educating them that, you know, oh, you know, this is pretty much one of the only things that are, that are still mined out here um, is this potash, uh, this potassium chloride salt. And um, and I really like telling them uh, that about the, the massive explosion that happened. Um, it, was, it was a terrible, terrible event. And, um, In 1964. Yeah, and uh, so so basically, uh, they they installed that in 1960, and they um, and they were digging down. Like I think uh, right here, actually, I'll just I have a old newspaper clipping from when the mine exploded, um, and it says um, that eight bodies were found in Utah, and the fate of ten is still unknown. So this came out right when you know it was uh, happening, and they were trying to recover those people, um, but. They were digging down for what was it? I think it's three thousand nine hundred feet down to where that thick layer of salt is, um, and one of the deepest mines in the country at the time. Uh, and it said they had a two thousand seven hundred and twelve foot vertical shaft. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> that just blows my mind that they were doing that. Then you know they had they had all of these other like little juts that were coming off of that mine shaft. Uh, that were going down even deeper and deeper and deeper and further and further and further, sort of maybe switch back and all the way down. And then someone hit one of those big old gas pockets and it just exploded. You know, they probably had a lot of lanterns down there. And, um, and yeah, that was just um, a huge, uh, terrible catastrophe. Um, so then, you know, we get to uh, these massive, huge uh, ponds, these big evaporation ponds that you can see uh, from Dead Horse Point State Park. You look down over towards the east, uh, on the east side, and you look down and see all these big blue ponds, and they're basically just kind of pumping out water uh, from the river, dumping it all the way down uh, to that formation where the salt is. They're letting it mix up with that salt and create kind of like a brine, and then they pump out that brine into these evaporation ponds. Um, and they add like a uh, copper sulfate to the water that turns it this really pretty blue color. Um, and that keeps the water a light color. And it also, um, you know, because if the water is dark, it's going to take longer to evaporate. Um, also, that keeps algae from growing inside of those ponds. That way they can effectively uh, do that. And, um, and on that road, we're basically driving like right next to like one of them. And then you look off in the distance and they see how many there really are out there. Um, so I, I assume that they, you know, uh, stagger things out. Uh, that way they're always continuously uh, being able to harvest um, one, of those, uh, one of those ponds out there. Um, and also, I mean, if anyone's ever been way out in the desert, like way out in the Yellow Cat area, you know, or, you know, there, we've even got the Mavita mine, you know, that was out there by Charlie Steen. Um, and even uh, down, you know, there's, there's just uranium, old uranium mine shafts, like 
everywhere out here. You know, <laughs> it's just insane. Like you can go all the way, you know, out in the middle of nowhere and you'll see a random, just a random post with like a stack of rocks next to it. And like, that is a huge indicator that, Hey, that right there is some history. And, um, so yeah, there's just, uh, so much, um, there's just, uh, so much in this area that, um, you know, we absolutely love, but, uh, yeah, we're going to take a really short break, just like real, real quick. And, uh, we're going to be right back and we're going to discuss a lot more of, uh, just, just some basic, uh, local Moab history. And once again, if anyone like to call in and ask us any questions or kind of chime in on the conversation, we would absolutely love that. Give us a call here at 435-259-5968. Once again, that's 435-259-5968. We'll be right back guys. Welcome back to the History Hour on KZMU. So in the break, we were uh, discussing what we should talk about next. And, uh, and, and, um, and you know, because, because this is all about, you know, our personal interest with the history in this area. Um, both of one of our favorite stories for both of us is, is how Canyonlands became a national park. Um, so I'm going to throw it to Blaine and he's going he's gonna to entertain you guys. Okay, well, <laughs> oh man, there is so much to be said about how Canlands became a national park. There was a lot of controversy going on at the time in the early 1960s, you know, as the uranium days were sort of, you know, uh, dying out. And then we've got all this land that we really don't know a whole lot about, all these huge canyons and stuff. And, um, and uh, there was Mr. Bates Wilson. Uh, he is one of my, he's literally my top three favorite uh, people in Moab uh, history here. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he, he was one of the main people that really wanted to see that area protected. You know, we had, uh, you know, also uh, someone of, uh, worthy of mention, uh, Mr. Kent Frost, um, uh, who, who wrote the, uh, the My Canyonlands uh, book, which is a really awesome book. And uh, anyway, so so Bates Wilson's doing all this groundwork and stuff, and he took out you know Mr. Uh, Stuart Udall uh, into in, into the canyons, and so you've got uh, Bates is doing all this groundwork, taking him and photographers and people making videos because if you want something protected, you got to make it popular. You know, uh, you want to show you want to show people this this place. Um, and so, you know, he's doing all that groundwork. And then you've got Mr. Stuart Udall, who's, uh, he was over the Department of Interior at the time. Uh, he was a uh, Arizona man. So he loved canyons. And when he went out there into the canyons, the one thing that he could say to Bates Wilson was, this is a national park. Like, this, this is a national, my goodness, look at this place. This is a national park. Um, I like to imagine them out on the White Rim because a, a lot of guiding that I do in the back country of Canyonlands is on the White Rim. Um, so, and I really absolutely love telling this. Anyways, I could go on all day about this, but uh, obviously this is the history hour, not the history lifetime. So <laughs> um, I'm going to read an expert. Uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from a book called Blow Sand in His Soul. And this is the Bates Wilson, The Heart of Canyonland story. And it was written by, by uh, Jen Jackson Quintano. Um, and this is a fantastic book here. Um, so uh, it says, in, in late October 1961... And Bates is leading a group of federal employees to suss out the scenic significance of the little explored lands to the west of the Green River, an area to be collectively known as the Maze. They, 
they spend a cold night with snow on the ground at French Spring, making use of old line cabin and corn crib as sleeping quarters. On Halloween Day, they push across the North Point towards its edge. Here, views spread across the compass, from the orange cliffs to the green river bottoms, red rock towers in the foreground and snow-capped peaks in the background, encompassing the white rim, the needles, and more. The whole of the Canyonlands erosion basin is visible from the viewpoint aptly, known as Panorama. Jim Beam orbits the campfire as the men <laughs> discuss the scenery and its, and its future. With his crew contently full of steak, Dutch oven spuds, biscuits, and coffee, Bates tests the waters with his BLM guests, the current managers of the land. He asserts, smirking, that, the, that such a scenic sweep of a park caliber not to be trusted to the Bureau of Livestock and Mining or the Bureau of Lazy Men <laughs> or anything else that BLM represents. So one of the guys takes a pull from the bottle, runs his hand across the sand, gravel, and stone beneath them, and he says, but this is such quality grazing lands. And they all kind of laughed. And it's a shame. We park, we, we park people hate cows so much, said Bates Wilson, lighting up a cigarette. That wasn't even beef I fed you. That was the last tourist to get lost in arches. <laughs> After a few more jokes, he embroidered by beam, asserts, Heck, Bates, if I, could just give you, if I could just give it to you to manage, I'd do it. Lord knows we ain't doing anything with it. I hate waiting for politicians to argue it out when they don't even know nothing about this place. Bates, with his bottle in hand, says, Well... It's just circumvent, uh, well, let's just circumvent the whole political triangle and draw up an agreement right now. What would it take for you to sign over this area? And, and he looks at him with the bottle across the fire, and he says, three shots of whiskey. <laughs> and Bates says, deal. He pulls out a little yellow notebook to any ranger that was worth the salt is going to carry one of these in his breast pocket. He hands it, so he hands it to him, and somehow unsteadily scrawls. Uh, sorry, he writes out on here, I hereby assign all interest of the BLM to the area bound by highways 24, 160, and 95 and the Glen Canyon Recreation Area to the National Park Service on this date, Halloween 1961, the bike cook. Cheers go around the campfire. Bates gently suggests that he waits until the next day to cash in on his liquid payment. So <laughs> if that's not just some good old Wild West, you know, backcountry Dutch oven politics. I have no idea what is, you know, and, and it's, it's just stuff like that that just kind of adds to our heart and soul here uh, in the Moab area. And um, Bates Wilson was an incredible person uh, in Moab history, and he came here in 1949 uh, to take the position as the general superintendent of Arches National Monument. And um, 1964, of course, we get Canelands National Park. And he called Canyonlands uh, terra incognita, which means land of the unknown, or sometimes he called it the land in between because he also was overseeing the Natural Bridges National Monument way on the other side. So this was kind of the area in between. And uh, he would take his old Willis Jeep, you know, all the way down to the Needles, and him and his son Tug were exploring. Oh, and here's also another really fun story I think everybody would like. Tug Wilson was his son, and he was the first guide in Arches. Uh, 1949. There was people getting stuck in the mud, you know, this is way before the pavement, and uh, they're using that Willow Springs entrance, and, you know, they're all 
there was just kind of some some you know mayhem going on and he's like you know what we we really need a guide service so he had a willie's jeep and his son uh would take people out on those trails and carry their water and uh, whatever else equipment and gear and stuff you know and hike them you know out to the windows and take them to the into the devil's garden and he would even drive all the way down uh which was kind of hard back then because there was no bridge to get you to uh from coming from the windows area out to the courthouse towers area so having a Jeep was extremely important to cross, you know, the courthouse wash. Well, not only was Tug Wilson the first guide in Arches, but he was also the youngest. He was doing this when he was 12. <laughs> <laughs> he was 12 years old. I feel like 12-year-olds back then were a lot different than a lot of 12-year-olds are today, um, if I can say that. Um, and um, and there's a really um, uh, unique um, interview uh, that was done with Tug Wilson in the early 90s. Um, that I, I had read about on the Moab Museum website. And um, so, and of course, 1972, Arches becomes a national park, expanding the boundary lines. And, um, and uh, so Mr. Bates Wilson retired that year and uh, had passed away about a decade later. Um, so yeah, Blow Sand in His Soul, awesome book. I absolutely love it. It is one of my absolute favorites here. And, um, but you know, the, the history of these parks, uh, is, is just so rich because that's the draw here. You know, that's, that's why I feel like at least what 90, 95% of tourists come here. They come here to go to arches and Canyon lands and to, you know, see these scenic wonders that you just can't see literally anywhere else. And I have so many people whenever I'm guiding them and we go out onto the white rim road and we're out there and they literally like look over like little bridge Canyon and we're checking out the washerwoman and look down to monument basin. And I'm not kidding. You have so many people that tell me they're like, man, like this is so underrated. Like we had no idea <laughs> that this place was that beautiful. And that was exactly what Bates Wilson was trying to show the world, you know, uh, by taking all these photographers and, you know, people with video cameras and stuff out there, you know, just, uh, you know, spread it out. And just rolling off of what Blaine said, you know, as guides, we bring people out every single day. And, um, and, you know, inherently as human beings, we have an, an inherent, uh, thirst for exploration. Um, you know, we, we are as a species, you know, nomadic, we've moved, um, and settled everywhere in the world. Right. And, um, and so, so Moab going back to the beginning of the show, um, when Blaine asked me what my favorite thing about Moab was, I mean, the nearest city to us is two hours away, right? We have so much space and there's still so much to learn because in the grand scheme of things, like we know a little bit about a lot, but we don't know a lot about too much. So we're still in the phase, <laughs> you know, we, we get confused because we have all of, you know, we have modern medicine and all of these things, but, but really we're, we're still learning. We, we know so, so little. And, um, for me personally, having traveled the world and lived in so many places, um, and, and had that thirst for, for knowledge, um, and, and adventure, um, s this place, Moab is, is special. Um, it's, it, it holds, holds an energy that's unlike anywhere I've ever been in the world. Um, it, it seems like there's a new adventure or a new activity or, or something right around the corner constantly. Um, I want to, I want to share a quote real quick as we talk about exploration and this, this ties back into the history of Moab. We have an unknown distance yet to run, an unknown river to explore. What falls there are, we know not. What rocks beset the channel, 
we know not. What walls ride over the river, we know not. Ah, well, we may, we may conjecture many things. That's John Wesley Powell, um, the first man to, to traverse the entire Colorado River. Um, he did it with one arm. And, and I, when, whenever I'm, I'm on the Colorado River doing a tour, I talk about Powell and his exploration. Um, you know, they did it in wooden boats. It was, you know, it, that type of adventure and exploration lives on today still in Moab. Um, I don't know a single person that doesn't go out and explore and adventure. And, and, and you know, so, so I, think, uh, I think that, um, yeah, I think Moab is is a, uh, a special place for, for that type of adventure. It seems like it, it never ends. And I think that's why I felt so drawn to stay here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been here for, um, you know, this is, this is my fourth season here. And I was just one of those Moab dirtbags living in a van, you know, um, just kind of coming here to check the place out and absolutely just kind of fell in love with, with, with this place. And, and one of the things, you know, just seeing that there is so much to explore out here and so much, you know, and I, see, my fourth season, I, I, I feel like I haven't even scratched the surface yet. And I guide out here. <laughs> like, I've been guiding out here, you know, for, you know, a few years now. And it's just like, it just blows my mind. But I really feel like me personally, it's it's definitely in my blood. And I'll tell you guys something uh, interesting. I'm, I'm, I, I'm from North Carolina. Uh, sometimes it comes through, sometimes it doesn't. I don't have any control over that. And I'm from Virginia, so, so, you, so our accents come out every yeah. now and then. So, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm mostly from the Appalachian Mountains. And um, and my aunt is our uh, family historian, and uh, she showed me a family tree from Ancestry. And she was like, hey, look who your seventh great uncle was. This makes a lot of sense with why you're such a wild man. You know, and I was like, okay. I looked. My seventh great uncle is Mr. Daniel Boone. So big explorer. Also, uh, he was a guide as well. I feel like that's why I've always wanted to, to, to do this, you know, this, this type of job. You know, um, I feel like it was just in there. And back in those days, you didn't hire a guide for, you know, a scenic fun tour. You hired a guide to basically get you to a fort. That way you wouldn't die, you know, <laughs> and to show you the way. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, I just have just this, this wild adventurous spirit out here and that, and, and, but to see the landscape is like one thing, but to like learn about it and to like learn about the history here. Um, that's something that really adds so much to it. Um, and, uh, there's a depth in this that, you know, we really just can't explain. I don't think that there's a word that's going to explain it. Um, but this place is absolutely magical. And obviously me and Josh are totally obsessed with this history here. Um, yeah, we've only been here for, you know, a few years, four years or so. And, uh, together and it's, it's, you know, we, we have read a lot of books. (laughs) I'm sitting here with a stack of, what seven books here in some old magazines and stuff like I am like just that I this is just a little bit you know and when you become obsessed with something and you fall in love with something you're gonna want to love it and you're gonna want to protect it um so and but. people can see that passion too so you know the old heads in Moab the people that have been here for 60 years or the family's been here for over 100 years um when they when they hear that 
that passion. Um, they, they can see that thirst for knowledge. They want to tell you about this place. Yeah. So, I mean, the amount of stories that we've been told, like we've just shared, you know, a fraction of those stories, but a lot of those stories you don't find online, you know, and a lot of, a lot of you folks that have been here for, you know, decades, you, you know how diverse this place is, how massive, um, and magical this place is. I, every day I'm asked questions that I don't know the answer to. And that's mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. I have no idea like what, what the answer to a question is. Um, and, and a lot of times I, I find the answer, you know, a lot of times I don't because there, again, there's so much that we still don't know. Um, and I think that's, that's a beautiful thing about living somewhere like this. Um, you know, if you live in New York city, like, you know, most things, like most things have an answer, but living somewhere where a lot of questions simply don't have answers, um, it lets your imagination run wild and, and see a place in a whole different perspective. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Well, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? I did want to add one more quote before, okay. before we had <laughs> Josh is full of quotes, by the way. <laughs> this is another John Wesley Powell quote. Oh, um, but we're talking about, you know, the adventure and, um, you know, a lot of people in Moab are, are transplants and they come from all over, right? John Wesley Powell lost his arm in the Battle of Shiloh. Um, so this is, this is a quote concerning that, right? Um, when he, when he has been chained by wounds to a hospital cot until his canvas tent seems like a dungeon cell, until the groans of those who lie about tortured with, with probe and knife are piled up, a weight of horror on his ears um, that he cannot throw off, cannot forget, and until the stench of festering wounds and anesthetic drugs has filled the air with its loathsome bur- bur- uh, burden, when he at last goes out into the open field, what a world he sees, how beautiful the sky, how bright the sunshine. And I think that's a powerful quote because a lot of us come from cities or come from, you know, the, the stereotypical um, view of civilization. And it's not until you come somewhere like this where you realize that, you know, coming up, we, we, we didn't have everything wrong, but I personally think that a lot of what we're taught in school and things like that, uh, what you see on pages is not, um, you know, not what the world really is. And when you come somewhere like this, you, you really learn a lot about what the world is and you learn a lot about yourself. Um, and I mean, as humans, right, we're on a never ending journey of, of knowledge and discovery, self-discovery, self-knowledge, um, and a place like this, it, it, it pushes you to learn and it pushes you to grow and change. Um, and, and that's why I'm in love with, with Moab. That's, a, that's, that's, that's awesome. And we're going to send you guys off here real quick. And, um, I want to, I'm actually, I actually found a quote. Like, <laughs> oh, you, oh, you got a quote now? Okay. Cool. I got a quote now. Okay. And this is the perfect quote to sort of wrap up this episode, I feel like. And it's a quote from none other than Mr. Bates Wilson himself. And he said, if you live, if you live this area long enough, the blow sand gets in your soul. That's why you stay here. No matter where you go, it's charm will forever tug on you like a magnet and with that i am blaine here with the history hour your co-host and guide and i'm josh we'll see you guys (laughs) same hour same time next month here on kzmu you can catch the history hour on the kzmu airwaves on the last monday of every month at 4 p.m 